Jay Schultz here, and it is the On a Roll Show, and uh, we are in April. And, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to start us off with where we're going, and that is a little cinema talk. So here we go. Get the play. All right, that means it's time for Cinema Talk with Michelle, Bruce, and Jay, and I'm glad you were all listening in. Uh, first, let me say hi to Michelle. Michelle is in studio. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see Michelle. you. Yeah. Bruce, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to April. Yeah. Good to be here, Jay and Michelle. Yeah, good to be good here. To, good to be here. It's going to be one of those uh, interesting weather days, but... Yes. Uh, but that is fine. So let's jump right in because we have a lot to go on uh, into. Before we get to our main topic, we're going to, as we always do, dive into In Remembrance. And I'll lead us off. Um, and that is with actor Emilio Delgado, who passed away March 10th at the age of 81. He had 62 acting credits, most noticeably. He was Luis on Sesame Street for 45 years, 428 episodes. Holy yeah, what, what a what a wow. terrific career! Yeah. He also appeared on uh, Lou Grant. He had 19 episodes on Lou Grant uh, from 1979 to 1982. He was on Falcon Crest, Quincy M E, and in the movie Follow That Bird, of course, which was a Sesame Street Sesame movie. Street. Big Bird, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, what a what a great! I mean, I remember yeah. watching Sesame Street when I was a young kid. Yes, so, and yeah. and I remember like yeah, he was on obviously for years, yeah. and like he was one of the adults that always really stuck out to me. And that's just a testament to what a you know what a talented actor he was. No, yeah. wonderful, wonderful yeah. actor. Michelle, you go ahead and go to number two. Um, so Academy Award winning actor William Hurt passed away on March 13th at the age of 71. Hurt had 106 acting credits, most notably for his performance as Louise Molina in Kiss of the Spider Woman, awesome flick, uh, for which he won yeah, the Oscar it. for the Best Actor in a Leading Role. Um, he was nominated for three other Academy Awards, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Children of a Lesser God, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Broadcast News, and Best Actor in a Supporting Role for a History of Violence. He played Secretary General Thunderbolt Ross in multiple Marvel films, Black Widow, Avengers Endgame, Avengers Infinity War, Captain America, Civil War, and The Incredible Hulk. And yeah, this man was probably one of the best actors of his generation. Um, what, my favorite William Hurt performance was in Altered States. Like, <laughs> that movie is terrific. Oh, yeah. That's totally yeah. up my alley. That's a Cronenberg film, right? Uh, no. I yes, think. it is. I think. No. So it I, is like a Cronenberg. It is like a Cronenberg. It was in the same era of Cronenberg. Maybe like Videodrome was Cronenberg. Yeah, Videodrome sure. was Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, but I was, um, but he, even in movies that, like, he was stellar. Even in movies like The Village, which were less than stellar yeah, films, right. this man shined. <laughs> but I was kind of sad to learn that he, um, that Marley Matlin, um, in her memoir, I believe, had accused him of abuse. Oh, when wow. they dated in the 80s. That. Yeah, I was sorry to hear that, too. And I don't mean to, like, when I bring things up like this, I'm not trying to tarnish anybody's legacy or disrespect them and their family or anything like that. But I just, I think it's, like, we don't want to overlook um, when talented people do bad things just because they're talented. So that's the only reason I mentioned it. But, yeah, I mean, Agreed. what a talent. <laughs> Agreed. Do you have yeah. any thoughts, Bruce? I do. Um, my acclimation to William Herb was, of all things, The Big Chill in 1983. And believe it or not, well, I knew about Body Heat, which I think was a pretty <laughs> oh, yeah. film with Kathleen. You know, if you like your modern film noir, that's, yes, that's, that's, that's very, very well-done sure. film. Mm -hmm. 
but putting it in the parentheses of time, William Hurt, we were told, uh, because I was in my freshman year studying acting in college, and he just sort of hit the scene with uh, films like you mentioned, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, um, and we talked briefly about Altered States, which is a very... Oh, I, I super quick, that. Uh, Ken States Russell was my <laughs> directed that. Yeah, Ken Russell, who <laughs> also directed Tommy the movie, yeah, if right, you know, right. who, yes. at, yeah, the musical adaptation of The Who, but getting back to yeah, William Hurt, yeah, yeah, Kiss of the Spider Woman is a great tour de force. Uh, Raul yeah. Julia's in that film. It's a tour de force if you're studying acting, and it just oh, happened yeah. to be right around the time I was studying acting. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he will be missed. And yeah, I am sorry to hear about the uh, improprieties or, or, or yeah. whatever. And you're right, you don't want to tarnish the legend. Uh, but just a, a very nuanced actor. Um, yeah, and even a film like Broadcast News, which. Right. Um, I forget the film that they're always comparing that to, probably unfairly, um, but it is actually a, a, a very good film. Oh, but yeah, yeah William Hurt, um, just like I said, putting it in the context of time, he's just, if you're an actor's actor fan, so to speak, he was just one of the ones from, from my generation. Yeah. So right. I just wanted to throw that in yeah. there. Did you want me to move on to number three? You go ahead, yes. Yeah, after Peter Bowles passed away March 17th at the age of 85, uh, Bowles had 140 acting credits over seven decades, most notably as Richard DeVere in the British TV series To the Manor Born. I know nothing about no, that. It is between 1979 to 2007. No. Um, he also appeared in The Disappearance for the Love of Benji. There's for dog lovers out there. I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least film credit that Jay pointed out is uh, Legend of Hell House, which is a great, I want, I can't precisely, it's got to be late or mid-60s. Um, I think Vincent Price Vincent was Price, a, yeah. yeah. My mom loves this movie. Yeah. She showed it to me. <laughs> She's all about the force. Price films. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, you know, absolutely. Peter Bowles, I just vaguely remember him, but um, you know, by association, yes, he was He was associated with a lot of great uh, creative forces. Do you all have thoughts about Peter Bowles? No, I really don't, but it's good that we recognize him. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay. uh, so yeah, I will move on then. Yeah. Uh, musician. Um, this one was really shocking and really, really sad. Uh, musician Taylor Hawkins, drummer and singer for the Foo Fighters, passed away March 25th at the age of 51. Yeah. So young. Uh, Hawkins was a drummer for Alanis Morissette from 1995 to 1997, supporting her Jagged Little Pill and Can't Now Tours. Uh, Hawkins joined the Foo Fighters in 97 and stayed with the band until his passing. He also formed a side project, Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Writers. Uh, the group produced three albums in early 2022, the horror comedy Studio 666, which I totally want to see. I know. It's totally yeah. like in my wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah starring um, Foo Fighters was re released in theaters. Uh, yeah. I saw this break. Like, I think it was like the that was like Saturday or Friday or Saturday night around when he passed. I saw it just pop up in my notifications and I just was just completely heartbroken. I was like, well, Taylor Hawkins? Oh, my God. You know, and my sister and I were, like, huge into Foo Fighters in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, yeah, that one hit me pretty hard. <laughs> no, it's a great you know, one thing I wanted to interject about the Foo Fighters, yeah. uh, all three of us are, are big music lovers. Yeah. And um, I discussed this a few times. What's really ironic about Taylor Hawkins and the Foo Fighters, me personally, uh, Nirvana never really... Uh, resonated with me, but yet I love Foo Fighters. And David Grohl, of course, 
um, very famous for being with Foo Fighters. I just wanted to interject that for some reason, you know, Nirvana was so popular, but Foo Fighters, I think, are a much more diverse, challenging band. And yes, I mean, 51 years old is a very young age, yeah. and it did, frankly, Taylor Hawkins passing, that did definitely resonate with me. Yeah, so I just wanted sure. to throw that in. No, I absolutely love the Foo Fighters and um, uh, Dave Grohl, and I mean it's such a fun band. They have so oh, much. Yeah. They have so much fun doing what they do, and yeah. uh, I hope oh, this yeah. is. I hope, unfortunately, um, I mean they were best friends. I hope this is not yeah. the end of the band. I, I mean that's. A, I mean that, you know yeah. he started out his career losing Kurt Cobain, and now he loses yeah. you know uh, Taylor Hawkins, and they were like best friends too. So incredibly mm-hmm. sad. Uh, um, go ahead, uh, Bruce. Do number five. Number five is actor Paul Herman, who passed away March 29th at the age of 76. Herman had 64 acting credits, most notably Pete Beansy uh, Gaeta in five episodes of The Sopranos, hugely popular show. Mm-hmm. He also appeared in Once Upon a Time in America in 1984, great film. People have different reactions to that film yeah. critically. Mm-hmm. I happen to like it. The Cotton Club uh, with Richard Gere, 1984. The Purple Rose of Cairo for the Woody Allen films that was released in 1985. A very have either of you seen that film by the way i love that movie <laughs> it is great if yeah. you love uh movies about movies so to speak. Yes. um yeah. i thought at close range with christopher walken sean penn great film 1986 uh the color of money obviously tom cruise paul newman 1986 the last temptation of christ never heard of that film just kidding no. <laughs> 1988 yeah. uh big Big crowd pleaser from 1989, Next of Kin, 1989, Cadillac Man, 1990, Goodfellas, 1990, Billy Bathgate, 1991, Bullets Over Broadway, 1994, Casino, 1995, Heat, also 1995, Copland, 1997, and six episodes of Entourage. Wow. What a resume. a resume for <laughs> yeah. Paul. It said most likely either he was playing a cop or a gangster in in, in whatever whatever uh, (laughs) show or movie he was in. No, what a yeah, terrific resume though. Go ahead, uh, Michelle. Uh, so yeah, this one, uh, a comedy legend, uh, actress Estelle Harris passed away April 2nd at the age of 93. She had 102 acting credits, most notably as Estelle Costanza, mom of George Costanza, yep. 27 episodes of Seinfeld. And she was also the voice of Mrs. Potato Head in Toy Story 2, 3, and 4. She appeared in Stand and Deliver in 1988, Out to Sea in 1997, My Giant 1998, Brother Bear 2003, and Home on the Ridge in 2004. Uh, yeah, and she was just so effortlessly hilarious. Anytime she was, she she was a scene stealer on Seinfeld. She and like Jerry Stiller oh, yeah. were just like two of my favorite characters on the entire show. Like, sure. her, and line delivery was just impeccable. Yeah, like, any, like, she would just take any line and just like, you'd just be cracking up hysterically at her. Just so, well, just so talented. Well, speaking of that, <laughs> Oh, you are so right, Michelle. And speaking of line delivery, you said it was impeccable, and you're absolutely right. I will, I, for me personally, Estelle Harris will always be remembered. The episode uh, where she's describing her son, George Costanza, using his body was, as if it were an amusement card. I'll my never heard. <laughs> that is my, you talk about line delivery, that will go down for me for yep. the ages. Like, go right sure. ahead. No, she was she was terrific. Um, gonna miss her. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
miss voice of miss potato head and i mean obviously seinfeld's <laughs> yeah. been gone for years but yeah. those you know those are replayed all the oh, time yeah. and you, you know whenever her and jerry stiller were on the you know in the show that episode it was always gr- oh, fantastic yeah. oh yeah that's scene stealers <laughs> yep absolutely yeah. okay i'm gonna do this one country singer william dale fries better known as c.w mccall passed away april 1st at the age of 93 now the I did a little look at this, and it's crazy. He created the character of McCall while working in an Omaha ad agency and released the crossover hit, number one hit, Convoy, in 1975. Oh, so yeah. he actually created this 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 character when as a, at an ad agency, but then he actually wrote this song, and this song inspired the, the famous 1978 movie of the same yep. name, starring Chris Christopherson and Ali McGraw. Right, right. And who was Alan it? McGraw? Who played who played Buford T. Pusser in that movie? Not Pusser. No, was it no, Pusser? no, not no. That no, was Pusser was Walking, Walking Tall. Yeah, who played the sheriff in this movie? Um, uh, oh, it's gonna bug the. I head. only know the it's song. Not, it's, I, not, <laughs> it's not. It's not Ernest Borgnine either. It's but it's another actor like that. Name. I know who you're thinking of. Yep, yep. I can't think of him either. Yep. Um, no, let me interject something really quickly about this song. I had first of all, until we did the piece, I had no idea that he had an alias. That C. W. McCall was an alias. But right. it's funny. Um, on my Spotify list, I'll put. It's like old country buffet. I'll put a little bit of everything on my Spotify song list. I had to put Convoy because. <laughs> I remember 19, look, approximately circa 76, we had a CB radio, and that was anthemic for the whole CB craze, which lasted about five minutes if you really want to put it in the yeah. context. <laughs> right, no, but hold, that song holds up, if you ask me. It's, it's, it's a, a novelty too. song, yeah. but it holds up, you know, and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just a lot of fun, and I'll yeah. always have fun memories of that song, and sure enough, I think the movie was, like Jay was mentioning, eh, it's probably going to be forgotten, but the song won't be for sure. Well, no, and I, I was absolutely, I, I nailed it. It was Ernest Borgnine oh, okay. who played the sheriff, Dirty oh. Lyle. Um, <laughs> and, and Pigpen in that movie was Burt Young from Rocky. Oh, my oh, goodness. Rocky, oh. yeah. It's, it's been, it's been yeah. Polly from Rocky. It's been years, it's been years since I've seen this movie. All right, you go ahead and move us to the next one, Bruce. Uh, well, um, actor uh, Nehemiah, I gotta be honest. No, uh, yeah, number, number, sure number eight. Uh, number eight. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh Bobby Rydell. Yes. I'm so sorry. Actor singer Bobby Rydell passed away April 5th at the age of 79. Rydell uh, was a teen idol in the 1960s. He had 14 acting credits, most notably playing Hugo Peabody in Bye Bye Birdie, 1963. We performed that on stage when I was in high school, believe it or not. Uh, Rydell had 34 songs chart in the Billboard Hot 100, most notably The Wild One, reaching number two, and Lola, pardon my singing, reaching number two, <laughs> Rydell High School, and the music and movie Grease was named after I him. Didn't know. I didn't yeah. know no. that. Give him hell, Rydell. That's uh, one of my favorite lines. Yeah. Coach Calhoun, yeah. Coach Calhoun by yeah. Sid uh, Caesar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he was fantastic. We're going to rip him, and we're going to tear him. <laughs> And we're going to come back here and ring that victory bell. uh, Sid Caesar was fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And then they they show that the secretary in the background, and she's like, you know what he's saying, rip him. She's like gnawing her teeth and like, (laughs) uh, anyway. 
Um, okay. Real, 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 real yeah. quickly, yeah. Uh, on Greece and the principal, who's, I forget her name, the, the lady principal, but the line I love in Greece is she's giving the morning announcements like I did in high school. And she's like, well, if you can't be an athlete, you can at least be an athletic supporter. That's right. And then she pauses, like, what did I just say? Go ahead. That's right. All right. Actor Nehemiah Persaw passed away April 5th at the age of 102. Uh, he he had 102 acting credits, which is crazy. Uh, most notably, uh, Reb Mendel, the father in Yentl, and the voice of Papa Moskowitz in an American Tale. I remember, Bruce, American Tale was on like all the trailers at Blockbuster when we worked there. Um, and the sequel. His first film role was the cab driver. Now, this is amazing. He was a cab driver in the famous I Could Have Been a Contender scene in On the Waterfront. He was, oh. he was, set, he was studying under uh, Aaliyah Kazan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kazan, and, and, and he paid him like $75 to be the cab driver in this scene. Oh, wow. Now, you're in this scene with Rod Steiger Mar- and Marlon Brando. And, and Marlon Brando. Yeah. And, and probably one of the top five movie scenes of all yeah. time, right? Yeah. I mean, this all scene... Time easily. Yeah, easily. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a great, great, great scene. Such the interactions is magnificent. So, okay, his career spans seven decades and included appearances on several TV shows. And I, wow, The Untouchables, Naked City, Rawhide, Burke's Law, The Big Valley, I Spy, The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, Land of the Giants, The Magical World of Disney, Mod Squad, Love American Style, Gunsmoke, and I could go on and on and on and on. Yeah, it's a and lot of shows. It was in a lot. <laughs> Lot of TV shows. He also had movie roles in the movie The Harder They Fall, uh, 1956, which was Humphrey Bogart's last film, The Wild Party, Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe, Holy Cow, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Voyage of the Damned, and Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Um, all right, so wow. Um, yeah. Bruce, why don't you do number 10? Actress, uh, singer, and stage director Ray Allen passed away April 6th at the age of 95. Allen had 53 acting credits, most notably Damn Yankees, 1958. That was her film premiere. A League of Their Own, very loved the love film from 1992. Stargate, uh, that's sort of a nerdy, great film, 1994. (laughs) I do too. I love If you love science fiction, there you go. And Rain or Me, uh, uh, over me, excuse me, uh, 2007. Alan also appeared on several TV shows, including The Sopranos. There we go again with that one. 2004, Soap, a great, great, sometimes overlooked TV series from 1980. Uh, the Greatest American Hero, 1981. <laughs> Lou Grant, 1982, another great TV series. Remington Steel, 1982. Hill Street Blues, 1982. Car 54, All in the Family from running theme of a very impressive resume remembrance so um uh very sad to learn uh yesterday they just recently broke 
Uh, comedic legend Gilbert Gottfried passed away April 12th at the age of 67. He had 184 acting credits, most notably as a voice of Yago, which he was amazing in, in Disney's Aladdin. Um, his other films include Problem Child, which is not a great film, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I, I was entertained. I was a kid when it came out. Right. Beverly Hills Cop, 1987. Hot to Trot from 1988. Alice Party, 1994. Meet Wally Sparks from 1997. A Million Ways to Die in the West. This man could show up in anything. Right. He could show up in a game show, talk show, yeah. some you know boring commentary show, and the man would just be hilarious. Like I would just crack <laughs> up. Like anytime this man showed up, like just phenomenal comedian. He was another um, person who was involved in the Aristocrats documentary. And I watched that again today. And I don't know how you get through that. Sit with a straight face. I would have. Yeah. I I mean, even Saget, even Saget stopped himself and go, am I really doing this? Because, you know, it's just absolutely the the whole point of that joke is as disgusting, as filthy as you possibly can make it. But um Oh, yeah. uh, there is a uh, documentary called um, Life Animated, mm-hmm. and it's about this this boy who was autistic. It's obviously still autistic. He's in his 20s now. But uh, when he was young, very young, um, he was losing his ability to speak, and his father realized that he would speak to him as Disney characters. So he, he – and the way he found out is he had a toy Iago, and he started talking to his son as Iago. And it's mm. – um, Late, and so, like, this is how he communicated was through animation. And so later mm-hmm. on in this documentary, you've got to watch this documentary, because later on he's in, in this group home, or, not, you know, I guess with with a bunch of other, you know, children on the spectrum, and they've got they got Jonathan Freeman there, and they're doing Aladdin, and they're performing Aladdin together, and Gilbert Gottfried walks in and does Iago. It's amazing. <laughs> Terrific tribute to an amazing individual. So real quick, I just want to just... Real quick, play this for everyone. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jafar. What? And then we drop Papa-in-law and the little woman <laughs> off a cliff. Yeah! Curse! <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Disney yeah. character. No, I mean, ever. he really, he really, <laughs> I mean, he steals that movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously you can't really take something from Robin Williams because Robin Williams is that film, but, right, I right. mean, he's so good. Yeah, I got, it was it was my favorite part. Yeah, of that movie. Yeah. He, he was just so good. Yeah. Uh, there's another clip out there of him on Hollywood Squares. Oh where, yeah. yeah. You've got to just do Gilbert Gottfried Hollywood Squares, and he's like the last square you can do a five square win, and they keep missing it. They keep getting it wrong, and he's like he starts making he starts trolling them. He's like you fool every time they miss it. And it goes on for like five minutes. Five minutes. No one gets the right answer, and finally, you know, someone wins. But you know, the whole they've got you know. Uh, Penn and Teller are there, and Whoopi Goldberg, all these comedians, and yeah. and they're just dying. They're just laughing yeah. so hard. He was he really could <laughs> he could control the room. Mm-hmm. He was really really yeah. really good yeah. at that. So Bruce, yeah. any thoughts? Well, I think you know, he's, I for me personally, I agree with the game shows uh, most notably, as you mentioned, the Hollywood Squares. But it was his when he could steal the show. He he just had command of. First of all, it's the voice, but it's his wit. But you could put him in so many different 
you know, it's no wonder that, like you were talking about the animation, you can't mistake that voice. He's just, you know, he's sort of the opposite of James Earl Jones, but right. he's got yeah. one of those, like, I hate to use this word, but iconic voices. It's just an overused word, yeah. iconic, but um, it, for sure, he'll be missed, definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, you, knew, you know who it is right away when you hear his yeah, voice. I mean, sure. it's Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, and that, that, obviously, it, yeah. it's not his real voice, so I don't know how he's able to maintain that voice, you know, yeah. all the time, because it's crazy. Definitely crazy. Yeah, so, really all right. So, our topic today is dystopian films, and we need to talk about what those are. So, we're going to yeah. let Michelle kind of walk walk us through that. Okay. So, yeah, I think it would be helpful to define what a dystopia is <laughs> before we start talking yeah. about dystopian cinema. Please do. So, and I'm going to be that person and say Merriam-Webster define. You know, Webster's dictionary defines, yeah. but it's a good <laughs> it's a good definition. It's a good definition. So, Merriam-Webster sure defines a dystopia as an imagined world or society in which people lead wretched, dehumanized, and fearful lives. So uh, definitely a place you don't want to be. Now, dystopia is, of course, an antonym of utopia, which is a perfect place, but a perfect place that probably can't actually exist in our reality. Um, In 1516, Sir Thomas More wrote the satirical piece called Utopia, or it was published in 1516, and it's basically about this society that's probably just too good to be true. It's just too perfect Mm -hmm. to exist. So the ter- now the term um, utopia, yeah, it comes from the Greek words autopia. Sorry, I've just butchered that, which means no place, and utopia, like e u utopia, <laughs> which means good place. So that's kind of where you get that meaning, like a good place that can't possibly exist. And uh, the word <laughs> dystopia comes from the Greek for bad place. <laughs> so uh, now the uh, getting into actual dystopian fiction, like what are the origins of, of that? Um, in ni- the 1921 Russian novel We by, I'm going to butcher this name, Yevgeny Zemyatsin, the Russian name, uh, is regarded uh, by many as the first dystopian novel. So it's about a a totalitarian government. Um, You know, this tale would set basically set the stage for two of the most well-known and highly regarded works of dystopian fiction, George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World from 1931. Uh, now, 1984 has been adapted for film twice. There's a 1956 version with Michael Redgrave, uh, father of Vanessa and Lynn Redgrave, and Donald Pleasance. And there's also the um, somewhat famous 1984 1984 <laughs> version of 1984 starring William Hurt and Richard Burton. John and, Hurt. Or, I'm sorry, John Hurt. Sorry, That'd been John interesting. Hurt. William sorry. Hurt. <laughs> John Hurt and William Hurt. Well, William Hurt could have done that role, too, <laughs> no, so let's not... I'm thinking about William Hurt. Yeah, I still got him on the brain. Thanks for count. Thanks. I, I do that sometimes. If something's okay. still in my brain, it'll come out. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> uh, Brave New World <laughs> okay. has been adapted right. for television. It's only been adapted for television, and it's in both uh, in 1980 and 1998. I recently learned that Ridley Scott and Leo DiCaprio... <laughs> We're planning a feature film adaptation of Brave New World in 09, but obviously it never really came to fruition. So um, now in terms of cinema, um, there uh, Fritz Lang's trailblazing dystopian movie Metropolis, which I'm going to talk about in detail in a few minutes, um, that premiered in 1927 and is regarded by most to be like, it, you know, the, the first dystopian film uh, in 1936, um, the British dystopian film Things to Come was released. H.G. Um, Wells actually wrote that screenplay, which he based, he based it on his 1933 novel The Shape of Things to Come. 
there are a few notable dystopian films um, that were released in the mid-20th century. Uh, Stanley Kramer's On the Beach came out in 1959. It stars Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire, and Anthony Perkins. Quite the cast there. And takes place yeah. sort of after a nuclear war where basically the only livable place on Earth is Australia. So I haven't seen it, but it sounds interesting. And I also wanted mm-hmm. to make a mention of the 1962 French short La Jetée uh, that takes place in post-apocalyptic Paris, and it was a significant influence on Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys. Uh, Twelve Monkeys. Yes, yep. that's why I wanted to bring that one up. And y- what could be argued as the most recognizable dystopian film of the 1960s is, of course, Planet of the Apes, with its twist ending that is still right. chilling to this day. Just still <laughs> something about seeing the Statue of Liberty yep. still yep. chills. Uh, now, in the 1970s, we have many popular and groundbreaking dystopian films uh, that were released, including, of course, Clockwork Orange, uh, Kubrick's masterpiece based on the Anthony Burgess novel, um, The Omega Man from 1971, THX 1138 from 1971, Silent Running from 1972, It's People, Soylent Green from 1973, uh, one that I recently saw and and enjoyed, I I don't know, because I like darkly comic weird movies, A Boy and His Dog from 1975 as a young Don Johnson, and he can telepathically communicate with his dog <laughs> and they're like wandering this post-apocalyptic right. land. Uh, there's also Death Race 2000 <laughs> from 1975, Logan's Run from 1976, and of course Mad Max from 1979. Now, of course, we get in the 1980s, that brought us the sci-fi neonora masterpiece Blade Runner from 1982, which we'll be talking about in detail. Uh, we also brought us dystopian classics like Escape from New York from 1981, The Road Warrior from 1981, Brazil from 1985. We'll be talking about that film. RoboCop, yes, from 1987, <laughs> one of the most gloriously over-the-top action films ever made. The Running Man from 1987. Akira, one of the greatest anime films ever made. Just stri- visually striking masterpiece from 1988. And... Put on the glasses, they live, (laughs) 1988, and obey, right? So in the 1990s, we get one of the most innovative films in all of cinema, not just in sci-fi, but we get the sci-fi sensation, The Matrix, 1999. um, And Jay has a clip that he wants to play for us. I did, but I accidentally, no, I can get get it right back. Hold on just a second. That was my fault. Technical difficulties here. I actually, real quick, I interviewed uh, Mike Schindler, who is a regular guest on my weekly movie update uh, from Classic Cinemas, and I asked him what his favorite dystopian film is, and here it is real quick. All right, you're listening to Cinema Talk, and we have a special guest going to give us a little, uh, his thoughts on dystopian films, and uh, that is Mike Schindler from Classic Cinemas. Mike, thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me. All right, so I'll get right to it. Tell me your favorite dystopian film and why. Yeah, this was hard. I thought about it a lot because there's a lot of really good ones. But, you know, at the end, I I don't know. I I, I can't kid myself. I I would say The Matrix is the best. That's That's a great choice. That's a great choice. Tell us why. I, I love the idea, you know, the kind of the philosophy behind it and everything like that. You know, the idea that even though it is a dystopian future, like m- most of the stuff that you see is just everyday, ordinary life. And that's the scary part, in a sense. That's the thing that people are fleeing from, <laughs> right. which is kind of weird. Um, but but also, you know, like it's one of those movies where it's like an action movie and everything it's very satisfying, some of the best action you'll ever see. But you could remove all that, and as a science fiction movie, as a you know philosophy movie and everything, I mean, the ideas in it are 
every bit as good as the action. And um, it, it really is one of the all-time greats. It totally holds up. And, um, yeah, that would be my pick. Uh, that's a great film. And did you know that Will Smith was almost yeah, cast we, in the Yeah, a little role. discussion about okay. Will Smith was almost the main oh. character. Oh, wow. <laughs> cast anyway, go I ahead. I didn't know that. Um, yep. So, um, yeah, that's an excellent um, description of The Matrix. Uh, other uh, dystopian films of the 90s include Total Recall uh, from 1990, um, one that I love that's absolutely awful, Demolition Man. <laughs> the, the three, th- <laughs> the, the the three, three seashells. seashells. I, I've actually got that in my notes because it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> that still makes me laugh to this day. Um, <clears throat> and then we've got 12 Monkeys uh, from 1995, excellent film. Strange Days from 1995, my favorite Catherine Bigelow film. Um, the indisputable masterpiece, Waterworld. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> 1995. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Heavy sarcasm yeah. there. <laughs> the Fifth Element, one of my family's favorites from 1997. Gattaca, also from 1997. And the absolutely brilliant and underrated Dark City oh, from 1998, which I think is one of the best dystopian films ever made. Yep. So just to briefly talk about the t- just going into the 21st century, um, noteworthy dystopian films from the 2000s include Equilibrium from 2002, Children of Men from 2006, V for Vendetta, which we will be talking about. Even Pixar made a dystopian film, my favorite Pixar film, Wally. <laughs> it is a dystopian film uh, from 2008, and The Road, which... Oh, from 2009. That is a harrowing, harrowing Isn't film. Isn't that based on the book by... Uh, by Mac McCarthy. Yeah, yes. McCarthy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's it's, a dark... It's, it's a the, great the book, the book is much better than the movie, in my opinion. The book was extremely... Oh, the movie yeah. was good, but it doesn't come close to touching the book. That's, oh, yeah. yeah no, yeah. of course not. And just to round up our discussion of the you know background of dystopian uh, films, um, uh, pretty much in the 2010s, young adult dystopian films nom- dominated. <laughs> we had all yep. these films based on young adult dystopian uh, book series. So, of course, we had the Hunger Games film. Films, uh, the Divergent films and the Maze Runner films all came out in the uh, 2010s. So yeah. it's just what, a, where yeah, is where is Idiocracy on here? Someone mentioned that 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 mm. to me. You know what? It is. It yeah. is. You know, I, it's, a, it's like it the only comedy. Film. It's the only <laughs> comedy dystopian yeah. film. Yeah, other yeah. than probably Brazil. Yeah. I can't yeah, really right, think Brazil. of. Uh, I was going to say Brazil. Yeah. 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 No, no, you're no, right. You're right. right. Yeah, I told. Yeah, I kind of overlooked. I love. I actually love Idiocracy. Yeah. Kind yeah, it, it's a, it is overlook a, that one there, it, but yeah, that's um. So now I believe we're going to be talking about yeah, obviously one of the greatest dystopian classics, Blade Runner. Yeah, well, um, I, let's say Blade Runner for last. Oh, okay. Let's roll through yeah. oh, our yeah. choices oh, first. Our tra- okay. So you yeah. go first. It makes more sense. I had things out of order, so actually, um, I think it's good that we're talking about this one first because this is what is regarded as most likely the first dystopian film. Um, we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, Fritz Lang's, uh, this is a seminal sci-fi masterpiece, uh, Metropolis. So this film stars uh, Bridget Helm, Alfred Abel, and Gustav Frohlich. Frohlich. You know, I butcher names all the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, (laughs) no. (laughs) Um, uh, There are very striking similarities um, to uh, many sci-fi films, including, like, Blade Runner. There's, I mean, you can... Uh, like the, the cityscape. I mean, I absolutely love the shots of the city in Blade Runner and Metropolis. I think they're gorgeous. Like, I wouldn't want to live in those, you know, dystopian <laughs> right, holes, right. but, like, they just look beautiful to me. Like, right. I would hang those scenes on my wall. Um, of course, you have in, in both films, you have um, Metropolis, you have a robot that uh, a, a human essence is transferred into this robot, and the scene has become incredibly iconic uh, with the robot and, like, the 
the lighted ring surrounding the robot mm -hmm. and it's in this um like laboratory the mad science there's a mad scientist character who kind of became like the prototypical mad scientist and you see like bubbling beakers on the set and everything of course we strongly associate all of that with the mad scientist trope in film so so you know metropolis had a significant influence on that now this is all this is one of the major works of uh the german expressionist movement um which is mainly um, took place in the 1920s in Germany, obviously. Um, Robert Wien's Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu are other notable works from that era. Now, German Expressionist works were characterized by strong contrast between light and dark and highly stylized and angular sets, which you definitely see in Metropolis, like especially in these um, city scenes. There's very strong contrast of light and dark. Now, um, this film takes place in this dystopian city where the elite live in luxury, like at the top of these skyscrapers and the workers toil array and these like giant machines in the dreary depths of the city so obviously that emphasizes the extreme class differences you know we, we would see that in many films to come where the elite live on top of the city and the the workers the proletariat are like underneath it um, and these uh, machines that kind of overwhelm you know buildings that overwhelm the people like symbolize how the govern you know the oppressive government um, now um, this film has had many cuts over the years um, the actually the original 1953 minute, or I'm sorry, let me try that again. The original 153 minute movie um, had many, many minutes shaved off of it when it was released in the UK, in the US in, in 1927. So it had premiered in Berlin in January 1927 and after that all the other cuts were just shaved down considerably so for decades only shortened versions of the film were available in um, 1984 one of the most notable versions of uh, I always butcher this guy's name G Giorgio Moroder the Italian composer he did a lot of like disco and synth music <laughs> uh, he released uh, this color tinted version with this pop rock soundtrack and that had Freddie Mercury Pat Benatar Adamant um, it, it doesn't look bad. For a while, it was like one of the most like complete versions of Metropolis. But yeah, some people had an issue with the soundtrack and the color tinting and all that. Now, the interesting thing about Metropolis is in 2008, um, a, so I, like I had said, you know, like a lot of lost film, a lot of si uh, silent cinema, they're they're lost. You know, these canister, you know, the film canisters, right. um, no, they were yeah. flammable. They would just <laughs> go up in flames and, sure. and when they were stored. I mean, most silent films are lost. So a lot of people didn't expect. Um, for the complete Metropolis to ever be found. But in 2008, a scratched up but mostly complete print of the film was found in Argentina. And it contains 25 mm -hmm. minutes of footage that had been lost since Metropolis's Berlin premiere. And so after a very meticulous restoration effort, the mostly complete Metropolis was released in 2010. I'd say it's about 95-ish percent complete. It's not a, there are still some scenes missing, but for the most part, we have a complete film, which is really, really cool. Um, now, when this film was first released, like I said, because it had been, there were so many sloppy edits of the film, um, it, there were a lot of negative reviews of the film. Like H.G. Wells, you know, one of the most famous sci-fi writers of all time, <laughs> called it the film silly and foolish. In a 1927 oh, review wow. of the New York Times, he, he was not a fan of this movie. Um, and um, oh so, so, yeah, it's kind of funny to think about now because this movie is now regarded as yeah. a definitive pioneering no, masterpiece right. of science fiction you're right. cinema. So now, while it was dismissed and derided, uh, obviously, in the early 20th century, it's now regarded as a masterpiece that has had a profound impact on our popular culture. 
Um, and like the original design for C-3PO was based on the Metropolis robot and Madonna's Express Yourself video, which was directed by David Fincher. I can't believe I just learned that. Heavily <laughs> inspired by Metropolis. So, I mean, it's had just such a significant influence on our, not even just sci-fi, but all of our popular culture, or a lot of areas of our popular culture. Now, I just wanted to end, because uh, I don't know, when I'm going to have the opportunity to talk about Fritz Lang on Cinema Talk again, <laughs> or no, in general. Um, so uh, somebody uh, who was a big fan of this film, uncomfortably so, is Hitler. And in the, uh-huh. ni- yeah, in the 1930s, um, Hitler basically had Joseph Goebbels go talk to Fritz Lang and offer him a prominent position in the Nazi film industry. So Lang's like, I'll think about it. That <laughs> night, hopped on a train to Paris wouldn't return to Germany for decades. Like, right. it was like, nope, nope, I'm out. You know, like, it was like, yeah, I'll think about it. Nah, yeah, right. I'm getting out of here. So, um, yeah, it's it's just, um, I just love much. I mean, it's a gorgeous film. I actually genuinely enjoy watching it. And it's possible that, you know, like I said, it's a seminal film. We probably would not be, it, who knows, these films that we're going to talk about today, who knows if they would exist or right. look like they do without Metropolis. No, so. I agree. Yeah. All right, look, Bruce, let's jump into Brazil. Mm-hmm. Brazil, real quickly, uh, yeah. let me just piggyback on, on Michelle's choice sure. of Metropolis. Sure. Yes, you could definitely say it was the template for everything that's mm-hmm. to come. Yeah. I was just right before we went to the piece, and here's the piece today, I was, uh, I'm very familiar with the film. A few things, though, you mentioned these imagery. It's so rich in this imagery, particularly, you know, even if you're not familiar with the film, you know the robot, like we mentioned with yeah. the ring circles and yeah. Yeah, C-3PO and all that. We know all about that. But what I think is fascinating, first of all, it's set in 2026, and I think a real prevalent (laughs) theme for dystopian films, that's real close to now, guys. That's real close to now. And so, you know, you you mentioned Hitler and Nazi Germany. I think it's very foreshadowing because there's this dynamic of this, you know, uh, what do they call that? The upper crust living above in this gorgeous metropolis. And there is below these, and and let's, let's just mention the Holocaust for a moment. You know, there's these workers that are working to support this glorious, glorious lifestyle. So I don't yeah. want to get too political, but I was struck with that. I was also struck with the the beautiful woman, and I guess that's Brigitte Helm. I don't yes, think she's going to yes. be a household name anytime soon. No, but it's but... kind of like Frankenstein. You mentioned mad uh, scientist, Michelle. Yeah. It's kind of like Frankenstein in reverse. Oh, so yeah. you're real familiar, you know, and there's that shot of the, the face of the robot becoming this sort of model. And yeah. there's actually an image of Metropolis of the Grim Reaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of imagery and very controversial, but it's uh, it, it, it's just a great feat. So, yes, I will indeed jump into Brazil. Once again, I'm putting it in the parentheses of time. It was 1985. I think any film critic, um, I think the, the, the best, the paramount compliment, anybody that sees a film, it warrants multiple viewers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. And it's a, yes. just a little bit of background information. It's for Jonathan Price as sort of the the protagonist here. Um, a lot of people will shy away from Brazil when they find out it's a Terry Gilliam film, and that's just based on my experience. A lot of people will say, well, I don't get Monty Python, or I don't get British humor. It just misses me. It's too <laughs> absurd. It's too silly. Which is why you I know what it. I'm saying? Or it's, <laughs> it's for, you know, exactly. That's precisely the charm. Yeah. You know, you either, it's almost as if it's stark. You either love it or you don't. Wow. Brazil is by far, I think, what sets it apart from the uh, the three that we picked today. It 
it does turn dystopianism on its ear and make, and pokes fun at it. And there's that, you know, like all dystopian films, especially Brazil, there's that peculiar juxtaposition of Jonathan Price plays this just dogged. Um, I'll point out one line. I love Michael Palin, uh, of course, you know, he's in a movie. And of course, we remember him from Monty Python fame. But I love the line where he just, you know, Jonathan Price is going through all this ordeal, both in his dreams, but then in his day to day life. And he finally just says, you know, we've been friends. Yeah, uh, Michael Palin says, we've been friends. But until all this blows over, just stay away from me, okay? <laughs> you know, and it's like, so he's kind of the point of view, you know, Jonathan Price. But it, 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 I don't want to babble about the film, but I had to see it. I saw it in the theater, thank goodness, upon its release in 1985. A lot of people don't realize the title. Uh, Terry Gilliam took the title not from the country. It really has nothing no, to do with the country, no. Brazil. But there's an old song that yeah. I recently just played, and that's where he got this concept. But it's Terry Gilliam. Of course, we remember him from, like, uh, 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 The Adventures of Aaron. Munchausen, I think, Jay, you're fine. Time Bandits. Time Bandits. Time Bandits. Let's yeah. not forget that. Twelve monkeys. He's an American, yeah, uh, by right. the way. Yeah, he's the only uh, American you know in, in that troupe, yeah. right? In that troupe, and, yeah. and, and he did the animation, the series, which is beautiful, crazy, nuts animation. Um, but Brazil is basically, you know, uh, Jonathan Price plays this dogged uh, uh, person in this dystopian life, but in his dreams, and, and who better than Terry Gilliam to rent, you know, he's flying around in this sort of knight in shining armor with wings. And then Tim Greist is really good. I hope it's Greist and not Greist. I always said but Tim Greist. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, in his dreams, she's like this veiled ingenue. She's just like the perfect angel, I guess. It's, you know, very angelic. And then, you know, when he sees her in, in real life, she's got this butch haircut. And, you know, she's right. very, uh, she's sort of a, a soldier type. And, and he finally just says to her, you know, in his real life, not in his dream, he's like, I'm in love. I'm in love with you, but only in my dreams. And she just thinks it's ridiculous. And she's just really, really hard. But it's a, like all dystopian films. It's a feast for the senses. Right. Um, they're so, and I, I know we're, we're limited on time, but I'll tell you the scene. And this is kind of strange because you won't find it in trailers. You actually have to see it in the film. But there's this ridiculous scene in the short lived, but it's so Monty Python. And I think it's Jonathan Price is in some kind of office. And he's sitting across the desk from this little, little girl, like, say, six years old. And she keeps going. She's just kind of chanting. She goes, let me see your willy. I want to see your willy. And it's, it's like, what the heck is that doing in this film? But it's, again, yeah. it's that absurdist sort of yeah, nuance right. of, of Terry Gilliam. So uh, it's got a great soundtrack, by the way. Mm -hmm. But, it, again, I can't stress enough, there, it, it definitely puts dystopian on its ear as far as humor. But there's that juxtaposition of geez, my life is so, you know, my day-to-day -day life is so deplorable. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, my dream life is just, you know, exquisite. So it bounces back and forth. But I had to see it a few times. Um, there's also just, you know, supporting cast. Ian Holm is in that film. Mm -hmm. um, Ian Holm, I always remember from uh, The Fifth Element. We mentioned that real briefly. Yeah. I absolutely adore that film. Right. But Ian Holm shows up. Uh, we already mentioned Jonathan Price. Of course, there's an actor no one's ever heard of named Robert De Niro, and I remember thinking, what?
what the heck are you doing in this right. film? You know, and he plays this sort of handyman that's on that's like suspended from like what you you know like a table, and he befriends Jonathan Price's character, and he is the American totally. He doesn't use any kind of accents, or you know, he's not affected. He just you know he kind of swings around and he keeps his mantras. We're all in this together, kid. We're all in this together. And then I don't know. But I, I want to hear your guys' thoughts because I know our time. Uh, uh, no, Michelle. Just really quick. I, you know, you can definitely see Orwell's influence yeah. And, yeah. and Metropolis's influence. You know, you could definitely you could analyze this film all day as right. a uh, yeah, and dystopian themes. But I just got to admit. I just love watching it. I just, I, I just get engrossed in the visuals. I love those arresting, offbeat visuals and and the humor. I love British humor. I love Monty Python. I love absurd yeah. humor. So this is just one that I don't, you know, Bruce. We've talked about that sometimes. Like films, we just like like David Lynch films. We just kind of want to appreciate them for what they are and not right, think too much right. about yeah. them. And exactly. Brazil's one of those yeah. that I just, I just love to watch it. You know, <laughs> I just appreciate it for yeah. what it is. No, I agree. And yeah, I will say um, from Monty Python perspective. You know, I remember seeing when I was in high school, Time Bandits mm-hmm. and Monty Python, Meaning of Life in the theater. Uh, you know, Brazil is one of those movies I caught on video later on. Yeah. But I've always, I mean, I remember watching Meaning of Life in the theater and I was laughing so hard that I'm like uh-huh. on the floor in the theater. It's the Mr. Creosote <laughs> scene, you know, not one more bite, right? And that, that whole, I mean, I'm it's laughing so. It's only a wafer thin. It's only a wafer thin mint. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then was it, who, who comes in and gives away the speech? And then he's, but at least I don't work for it, you know. Uh, you remember yeah. that? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get into it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let me move to uh, our final film before we go to, because I want to do this real quick so we can jump into Blade Runner. But my film was V for Vendetta. It's 2005. Directed by James McTeague, uh, starring uh, Hugo Weaving, uh, Natalie Portman, Stephen Fry, John Hurt, Stephen Ray, and Rupert Graves. Okay, so um, big comic book fan, comic book graphic novel fan mm-hmm. from the late 80s, early 90s. And Alan Moore uh, had a couple, but he had The Watchmen, which is my favorite all-time graphic novel. Uh, but yeah. V for Vendetta yeah. is a very close second. And so it's basically mm-hmm. a future state where... Um, you know, there has been it's supposed to be England, right? They don't ever say it, but it's England. And what had happened is there's this terrible tragedy where uh, a bunch of people die. Uh, someone has the, uh, the they get poisoned. And someone has a, a cure for it. And that person, uh, you know, ends up becoming like the dictator of the state, essentially, you know, played by John Hurt. Uh, and V was one of the uh, experiments. Right, and the the story is told through the um, the view of Natalie Portman, who is this kind of shy, uh, um, you know, person just getting through society, and the you know captured. You got to read the. I mean, the book is fantastic. The comic book is fantastic, but mm-hmm. he captures her and kind of transforms her. Uh, you know, he he is an a- anarchist. Uh, it's very much tied to the you know, remember, remember the fifth of November. November yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. tied to all of that, right? And and he, it really is a, again another visually stunning movie. Yes. Uh, yeah. The blacks, the reds. There's the oh, one. Yeah. There's the one scene where they V sets all these dominoes up, and I think I read somewhere where it took they hired master domino people to do that. And it took, they hired like four of them, and there's like thousands of dominoes that when he knocks them down, form the letter V, you know. And it's it, it, it. I love this movie. I love the book. I highly recommend it. It's you know very very dark, you know very very you know how 
you know, how our, our leaders can manipulate us to get what they want and, you know, how, you know, V is very much, you know, fighting, fighting back onto that. And, uh, you know, Natalie Portman eventually becomes V, you know, at the end, that's kind of where you, where you leave it. Uh, but I, yeah, it's a stunning film. Um, and I thought it was much better. The reason I watched it is directed by Zack Snyder, the movie, the ending of that, unfortunately is, um, to me, very poor because it strays off the book, and I didn't like that. I loved the movie until <laughs> the ending, and then it, it just it, it didn't do it for me. So um, oh, I meant for the, forgot to mention that screenplay was written by the Wachowskis, who did uh, obviously the Matrix, Matrix right? Uh, produced by Joel Silver, uh, Grant Hill, and the Wachowskis. So that's all I've got, guys. So um, um, go ahead. real quickly um, about B for Vendetta. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Michelle. I didn't mean to stop on this. No, go ahead. no um, you go really quick. Yeah, I was just going to go to oh, yeah, well, a, a moment ago, real quickly, we were talking about John Hurt, and I wanted to point this out. In 1984, the film film, which yeah. actually was released in 1984, John Hurt, the main character in that, in the Orwellian film, he plays the oppressed, right, basically. Right, he right. is the ingenue, you know, main character. However, in V for Vendetta, he plays the Hitler. He plays the dictator. Right. He plays yeah. the oppressor. Yeah. So I just thought that was a funny association that John Hurt would be in both of those films. So. Absolutely. Let's jump to Blade Runner. Just um, really quick, uh, Blade Runner, um, of course, directed by Ridley Scott from 1982, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rucker Howard, Edward James Olmos, Daryl Hannah, Brian James, James Hong, Emma Mitt Walsh, and Joanna Cassidy. Now, I just really want to just really quickly point out, uh, well, of course, it's loosely based on Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, Loose adaptation. Um, It beautifully combines, I mean, I I think, Bruce, you called this film like a visual feast or something. You described it beautifully. Like, it is a beautiful film. It's an amazing combination of both the sci-fi and the neo-noir genres, both genres I absolutely love. That's why I love this film so much. And uh, there are a few quick parallels between this and uh, Metropolis. Like, I already talked about the influences, like the replicants are like the robot in Metropolis. And there's, like, scenes of eyeballs. There's, like, these eyeball shots in both films that <laughs> right. I didn't notice, like, these close-up eyeball shots <laughs> until I rewatched both films this weekend. But um, there were also multiple cuts. Like, I talked about multiple cuts of Metropolis. There were multiple cuts of Blade Runner. Uh, now, my mom, for years, would talk about... I had only seen the director's cut from 92. And my mom was, like, talking about, oh, there's, like, a voiceover. There's Deckard as a voiceover, and there's this ending where, they're, you know, he and um, Sean Young are driving through this beautiful, sunlit, you know, picturesque landscape. I'm like, Mom, what are you talking about? That, of course, is the, you know, the theatrical, U.S. theatrical cut from the 80s <laughs> that she had seen, but I'd mm. only seen the director's cut. And, of course, now there's the final cut. There's so many cuts of this right. film. And also, it was interesting, just really briefly, and then I'll turn the floor over to you guys, um, there's a, kind of an interesting parallel between Blade Runner and Metropolis in that both have been you know praised for their aesthetics as gorgeous gorgeous films but maybe oh, criticized yeah. for their stories a bit even Ebert loves Blade Runner he didn't he, well he included the final cut in his great movies list but when he reviewed the 92 director's court, uh, cut he said it looks fabulous but it's thin in its story so I found that kind of interesting that both Metro, you know it, it, obviously Blade Runner is heavily interest, influenced by Metropolis but there are other similarities as well in terms right. of its multiple cuts and how it's been critiqued so I just wanted to point that out absolutely <laughs> yeah. Bruce, go ahead real quick. You know, I want to echo what what Michelle said. I think it is indeed, and I'll say it again, a visual feast, that you lose yourself in the aesthetic. You sort of lose yourself Mm -hmm. in that aesthetic arrest, we used to call it in acting. You lose it to the point where you just mentioned the plot line. The plot line for me, as I view that film, is almost an afterthought. 
and I know, like we talked about, it's been edited and re, you know, and, and redone so many times over the years. But it is the narrative may be a little fractured. It's a film noir, yeah. if you yes. ask me. You know, yes. Harrison Ford is set to investigate mm-hmm. and hunt down these replicants. But I mean, it is just so in the acting performances and the whole scape. It's like, yeah, for me, the narrative, of course, in any film is important. But you lose yourself in that, like I said, aesthetic arrest that it almost is an afterthought. I just wanted to. Put yeah. Sure. No, it's a beautiful yeah. film, and really, the, <laughs> I mean, I can't. Everything you're saying about Echo, I think, yeah, I think that you know, the the thing though, the, the, I, the this really isn't a science fiction movie. This is a movie about life. What is life, yes. right? Yeah. What is yeah. existence? Yeah. What does yeah. it mean to yeah. be here? Yeah. And 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 Rutger Hauer, his oh my speech. Gosh. Oh my God. Which, yeah. which, which, which real quick, I want to play it because it is my it's like one of my favorite movies. And it's very very quick, so I'm gonna play it right now. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours gate. All those moments will be lost. In time, like tears in rain, time to die. Oh, so oh, so beautiful. oh, my God. Can I can I just interject yeah, something real quick. really quick, guys? I know. Yeah, real quickly. I want to echo as far as dystopian films. The the sort of epiphany I had is that if you look at nowadays technology, we have smartphones, we have all this technology yeah. at our fingertips, and this is a prevalent theme in dystopian films. Mm-hmm. Technology, I think, is now our savior, unfortunately, and I think yeah. that is a prevalent theme in dystopian. Do you see, does that make any sense? It's like now we look to technology to save us, and it's not going to. Okay, I'm off my (laughs) soapbox. That's all right. (laughs) All right. Hey, guys, what a great topic. So uh, something else occurred this this, this past month. Uh, We found the unfortunate news that Bruce Willis um, is retiring from acting. He has aphasia, which is a cognitive disorder. Um, and uh, I, evidently, this has been going on for some while, some time. You know, the reports out there that yeah. uh, um, you know, you could, they, the actors working with him, people working with him, have noticed that something was wrong, uh, and you know, they finally just announced that he was retiring. So next month, uh, we will celebrate the wonderful career of a movie star, Bruce Willis. Sound good? Yes. Excited. Yeah. Excited. All right. Hey, well, Bruce, thank you for joining, my yeah. friend. Be safe. We will talk oh, to you soon. You're very welcome. Michelle, thanks right. for coming yeah, in. For sure. Thanks. All right, you guys, uh, we will talk soon. Take care, and I'm going to go back to our regular programming. Thanks for tuning in here to Cinema Talk. All right, so.